On today's episode, we give thanks, win investment games, and designer microbabies? All that and more coming up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Our Science. I'm your host, Alan Collier, and I'm joined today by Kyle Vine yeah. and Sarah Vokey. It's not hot where I am, so hello. I, I hate you. There's a heat wave in Ontario. Uh, Kyle and I are both from Ontario, and we are suffering. So if you like to hear people in pain for 30 minutes, then this is the episode for you. If you haven't heard the podcast before, then what we do is we take the three most interesting papers of the last two weeks and we break them down and get past the headline. Normally we're happy while we do it, but not this week. This week we're in pain. This week is for the sadists. The sadists amongst our listeners. How hot is it? Uh, It's too hot, Sarah. It's too hot. Uh, It is 35 (laughs) before you take into account any humidity or other things. And boy, my wet bulbs are very wet. Our first paper today comes from SciPost. Gratitude motivates people to meet the sexual needs of their romantic partners. The study suggests that those who feel appreciated by their partner and appreciative towards their partner tend to have a stronger sexual bond. And fittingly, this article is a tease. Yep. Because my, my personal problem with this paper is that it's, it's very interesting. It makes a nice little connection between if you have gratitude. It's what the title says. If you have gratitude towards your partner then you're more likely to be aware of their needs in bed. <laughs> and that's good. Although that assumes that you know what the title means, because the phrase sexual communal strength means literally nothing to me. Sexual communal strength is... It is my favorite term that I have ever come across while recording for this podcast. Something about the phrase. <laughs> I read sexual communal strength and my immediate thought was... If you're grateful, you'll have better threesomes. Which is probably also true. It's probably also true, but... My thought was a a hippie commune. Like, it strengthens the sexual strength of your commune. Yeah, which, I mean, who doesn't want that? You know what? Gratitude is key to any orgy. You need to have fun, be yourself, and be (laughs) grateful. You need to be grateful for the opportunity. You know, make sure that you have a little, uh, you know, a little meeting of heads right before the orgy, make sure that everybody knows what they're grateful for going in. You know what? Yes. The mentality you bring in is really going to uh, influence uh, the experience that you have at your orgy. When you get invited (laughs) to an orgy, you approach it with the same mentality you do when your friend invites you over for Thanksgiving. You mentally prepare a list of things you're (laughs) thankful for for when they go around the table and ask, and you bring a bottle of wine to show that you appreciate your orgy host. And you know what? You could even you could even take it a step further. Bring a side dish. You know what's good yeah. for any orgy? Carbs. You know what's full of carbs? Mashed potatoes. Yes. Don't forget the stuffing. Do not- <laughs> Anyways, if we can if we cannot if we cannot get off track that fast. Uh the the definition for sexual communal strength is I find underwhelming. Oh, yeah. It is defined in the paper as having the motivation to fulfill a partner's sexual needs. How much do you actually care about what they're feeling and how much are you just doing it for yourself? That's that's not nearly as interesting a definition as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's like, okay, so there's a community of sexual awareness and like wanting to fulfill it between you and your partner. Yeah, you want in an ideal relationship, you're trying to make your partner happy as much as they're trying to make you happy, and then everyone's happy. 
But how do you get to that state? I think that this paper tries to tell us. Well, no, 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 because this paper tells us the end goal. This paper does not tell us how to get to the end goal. Well, they offer some suggestions, but then go on to tell you that those suggestions might not always work. Yeah. So, like, they do, they, they, they mention, like, you know, they give the example of cooking dinner, which, like, that's a real low standard uh, for yes. your relationship. Transactional um, <laughs> dinners. But, but, keep in mind that this was written about heterosexual couples, so, you know, that's probably accurate. Uh <laughs> Yeah, they give the example of like, you know, if you make your partner dinner, now they feel appreciated, you let them know that you appreciated them making dinner, and then everyone everyone's happy, and then everyone's real happy. Everyone's happy, and then you bring out the bowl of mashed potatoes. Yes. Uh, but then after a while, like, if you make your partner dinner every night, that is not, that is not sufficient. Yeah, it, it's, it's highlighting the importance of expressing the gratitude, I think. It's one thing to be yes. grateful, it's another to like say to the other person, I am grateful for you doing this. Yes. Now let's bone. <laughs> but yeah, it seems like what they're trying to get across is to keep, you know, sexual fulfillment levels up and to avoid sort of a normal downward trend that you might see over the course of a relationship. Um, to be aware of the fact that your uh, partner appreciates you yeah. and to tell them that you appreciate them. It's highlighting the link between expressing gratitude outside of the bedroom leads to better times inside the bedroom, which is, that's the part that I don't think is instinctive for people. Like, it makes sense once you hear it, but I don't think that people yeah. necessarily instinctively knew that those two things were linked. So by showing gratitude in everyday situations, you're going to have better sex. So my, I don't want to say problem, because it's not a problem, it's just, it's just the way this works, is that, okay, so we've linked that gratification leads to better sex. But then how do you generate that gratification? How do you make that work? Gratitude? Because as they say, like you're going to, if you just keep doing the same things, if you get into a routine, then you're just going to get bored and it's going to like, eventually it, it has diminishing returns. They have, yeah. a, they have a, a phrase here, finding the motivation to fulfill a romantic partner's sexual needs may be challenging at times, but it's important to remember that there are simple steps that can be taken to enhance this motivation, Brady told SciPost. And then I write in all caps, like what, Brady? What do you mean? What are the what steps? What are those simple steps? Brady, I don't know what the simple steps are. To do share. you know what the simple steps are? Uh, the simple steps are just a jump to the left and then a jump to the right. Ah, right. You put your hands <laughs> on your hips and then and you pull it in tight. tight. Yeah. That is the. <laughs> but I, I get I get what you mean though, Alan. Like they don't they don't give the steps and they they're very clear. They don't and know talk. the steps. <laughs> well, the, and they talk about this in the sense as like this is just one thing you can do. But it's not what necessarily what are the other what are the other things and like when you talk about it in this way it does come across as a very transactional view of relationships which is not a healthy way to do like not having either partner feel fulfilled in a relationship is probably not great for your relationship strength but so is having a very transactional view of like I mowed mm -hmm. the lawn so you're going to <laughs> do that one yeah. thing that you only do on my birthday. <laughs> Um, this reminds me of when I write essays in school, and I say, there are numerous examples of this, and then I list two examples because it's all I have. <laughs> but I just, there's implied that there are more examples. Two. I don't have them. Two is a number. Exactly. Two is a number, so is one. But two is more than they, one. They imply that there are other things you can do. They yes. don't tell me what those things are, so do I they... assume that they don't know either. To Kyle's point about 
making it seem like it's uh, transactional. I think that's a little mm-hmm. bit of just how science deals with these type of things, where we yeah. science wants it to be like quantitative and wants numbers and wants yes. it to be very well defined, which it really can't be. But it's easier to work within these studies if everything's yeah. well defined. Once again, the term sexual communal strength is used. You know, they're trying to quantify. Yeah, science is very like strictly empirical needs to have like data and numbers to back it up otherwise it's a lot of the times it's just kind of loosey-goosey wishy-washy stuff and so it's easier to view it as transactional they do talk about it as mutually transactional so (laughs) that's nice you know like all of the best business partnerships formal scientific writing is incredibly unsexy yeah it is it's not supposed to be entertaining or even like engaging it's just supposed to be factual and that's nobody if you're getting turned on by facts i mean good for you i guess but do you think this would be any different in a non-heterosexual relationship i think people in general like to feel like they're appreciated and they like to appreciate their partner so i i don't know i obviously have not done the scientific study i think the gratitude factor would still remain but i think like the example they give of cooking dinner I wonder if just because of the society we live in where there are still certain gender roles, I wonder if that would impact. My gut says that there wouldn't be much of a difference. It might be like a little, some small I don't think things, but my gut says it probably would yeah. be this seems like a, This seems pretty, just a human thing. Like they don't specify male versus female in the relationship too much. It's yeah. just a general. This is a very binary, like, and it's because it's a a scientific study, it's very transactional, very binary, very strict in the guidelines it laid out to be able to show a result that is, like, as we mentioned earlier, not something that people would necessarily intuitively think. But once you do think about it, you're like, yeah, it makes sense. Because now we have, like, very hard, pun intended science to back it up. The ceiling just got heavy, guys. That's not good. Are you drinking water or alcohol? <laughs> it is water, but the ice cubes were coffee. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fair. What? <laughs> What's Kyle drinking today? <laughs> what? Kyle, can I you make... explain? The coffee's coming from inside the ice. Wouldn't it make more sense to put coffee ice cubes in coffee? Or so I that used not... all my coffee to make ice cubes. Why didn't you put the coffee over ice? Or just in the fridge? Because then you have watered down coffee. What do you think you're doing with water? So now you have coffeeed down water. What? Exactly. (laughs) Blowing my mind. (laughs) What are you drinking? Mmm, it's mostly water, but a little bit of coffee. It's a long story. When you asked her, what are you drinking? That was not even close to the response I thought I was going to get. I know. I was thinking, I was like, okay, probably going to get something with ginger beer because Kyle likes ginger beer. Maybe something like that. Maybe an iced coffee. I was not expecting water with coffee ice cubes. That is <laughs> wild. And I don't, I don't even, what's the, what do you call Drinking that? Drinking sadness and desperation. It's not iced co- is it iced? It's not iced coffee. That's coffee with ice. It's coffeed water. It's coffeed water. It's yeah. It's coffee. God. The Sudbury I just, special. I can't even handle that. <laughs> this this is what breaks out it, it's it's too hot and that's too weird and i just don't know how to deal with it i just don't even have a response i don't have i don't have a snarky comment what? i got nothing water is boring 
Our second paper this episode also comes from SciPost. People of higher status are more likely to think that those who disagree with them are stupid or biased, even when their high status is the result of a random process. The findings could help explain why wealthier individuals tend to be more politically engaged than the less wealthy. This one's interesting. I like the way that they do this one. The follow-up experiment was so cool! Yeah, you're getting ahead of me. This is where they came from. They came from two observations. Economic inequality has been rising to historically high levels. And two, political discourse is becoming increasingly polarized, which we talked about in the last episode. And they're thinking that those two things are linked. Most notably that because of all the inequality, you are getting more polarized discussion. So they're trying, they did an experiment, and they found that liberals and conservatives were more likely to describe the opposing political party as uninformed, irrational, and or biased. What a shock. Who saw that coming? Interesting. I well, stunning. <laughs> political polarization? I don't know her. Yeah, well, we talked about this two, a couple weeks ago, so we don't need to go back over it. But what they found that was interesting was that those who have a higher socioeconomic status, so those who got those fat stacks, are even more <laughs> polarized. The wealthier liberals displayed more bias towards Republicans and vice versa. If you're a richer Republican, you're, you think less of the Democrats. So then they just keep trying to... They essentially just keep trying to test this and see if people ever stop working like this. Sorry, what's the term? They have a really good term for this. Naive realism. Yeah, they, okay, so this is a term, like we talked about the tease of the last term, the sexual communal strength or whatever it was. Naive realism is far <laughs> cooler, which is basically just the idea yes. that all of your positions are objectively true and everyone who disagrees with you is wrong and uninformed and irrational or biased. So it's sort of essentially the more con- like arrogant you are with your beliefs, the more naive realism I'm right, you you're wrong, shut up. Yeah, yeah. And so they kept, they kept doing things to try to stop people being uh, naively realist, I guess is how you would say that in that tense. Realistically naive? <laughs> sure, that too. <laughs> Having naive realism? They kept trying to drive this out of people, and they could not. So they keep doing these follow-up experiments. You know what? They were cool, but I don't know if they're measuring what the article says they're well, measuring. Well, I think, I think... Drama. Well, so the, the article... Ooh, dissent. Ooh. The title of the article makes it out to be a wealth thing, but yes. I think what they ended up measuring is more of this, this status thing, which is yes. not necessarily directly linked to wealth. Like, yeah. because status is is entirely dependent on whatever community or silo you're operating with. So in, like, economically speaking, status is associated with money. But, like, status on, like, could just be, like, the captain of the hockey team, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's go through the follow-up experiments. They took 252 people and they had them play what is only described as an investment game. And they did not go into the details of this investment game. This is a pretty common strategy in studies like this. You, you run them through some kind of little experiment or game or test or something like that. And it doesn't really matter what the game is, to be perfectly honest. So we're going we're gonna to sort of skip over that. What matters is that yeah. some of the participants were randomly, were randomly told that they performed better than 89% of all players to date. And then asked players to give investment advice. And the people who were told that they performed better were more realistically naive or had more naive realism than the other players yes so they were more likely to say that people who disagreed with their investment advice were biased and incompetent which is naive realism yeah so they just they said no 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 i'm right they're wrong and and without saying it in the head they're thinking because look how well i did at this game therefore i'm right this is the this is follow-up number one because in this one the participants were not told that the outcome of their performance quote unquote was random 
So then they do another experiment. They're like, well, we're just going to keep, okay, that didn't solve anything, so let's, we're just going to keep doing this. They connected a second experiment with 523 participants. This time, they told the participants that the outcomes of the game was determined entirely by chance. So it wasn't actually about how well you did. Even though you, your success is based on nothing. And this is where they bring in like the point that they talk about early on in the article, which is like, even if your success is completely random, based on nothing, you didn't earn your success, you still think, well, I'm successful, therefore everyone who thinks differently than me is an idiot. And I think the reason they're using wealth, they're using wealth as this sort of universal measurement of success, which isn't really accurate, but I also understand why they did it, yeah. because it, it makes sense. Uh, I think this is a classic example of article title not reflecting the study. Or not, not completely reflecting the study, because this is more about status and above, I was led to believe, okay, so the minute you have more money, you're going to have more of this naive realism. But what I'm getting here is when you feel more status. So is it necessarily that because you're wealthier, you feel like you have more status? I think that was the only part where I was kind of just like, okay, but how does, you know, how can we for sure say that this is because of this and so this equals this? I think you're absolutely right that this is not about wealth, it's about status. But I think using wealthy as a placeholder or a replacement for status isn't... Like, I get where that's coming from. I don't think it's that bad. You're right. It's it's not right, but it's... I get where they're coming from. And I think in, in a lot of cases, people do use wealth as a measure of status. So I, I get it. And I, I think part of what they were trying to do is they were, they were trying to extrapolate to this idea that people with... Because they, they bring it back to political views and why people are more politically engaged. And so what they bring it back to is people with high status, in this case, lots of wealth, um, are more likely to be to support political views that align with what keeps them having that high status. So the most the I mean, the obvious like connection there is like republicanism and capitalism are often very closely entwined because a lot of Republican ideals are designed to keep capitalism going. And so these people want to maintain their high status. And so when someone comes along who is lower status than them and says, hey, maybe we should invest in social things and take a little bit of money away from the wealthy. They want to maintain that high status. And so they say, you're an idiot and you're irrational and you're wrong. How dare you want affordable and or free healthcare? And so I think that, I think that's why they bring the wealth example in. And so that's like they, they bring wealth in to sort of reflect that Republican capitalism uh, view of society, which also it exists on the other end. of the I was going to say, a lot of... let's not just use Republican because this is definitely like universal. Well, it is universal, too. Yeah, because because on the other end of the spectrum, a lot a lot of high status Democrats are oftentimes celebrities who are more likely to oftentimes come out and say like, you blue collar rust belt people, you're all idiots for believing in certain presidential candidates. And Imagine. that's that's also not helpful and divisive. I think the value of, of a study like this is that it reminds us that we're gonna feel overconfident when we're successful. And that we should I mean, yes. if you're successful, which none of us are, but you know, in theory other people might be. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's being aware of your own biases and of your own arrogance and being that like you might be overconfident with some of the things you're saying. And I think more than that you're overconfident with what you're saying is that you're going to put other people down if they're lower status than you. And to be very careful of that. If you perceive that they are lower status. Because as we know, even if you were randomly given 
you know, this higher status. And if you're told this is completely random and has nothing to do with you, you're still going to hold those biases. And it, it doesn't have to, and this is where you say it is status over wealth. It doesn't have to be wealth. It could be like you, what your education level is. It could be, you know, what your skills at a particular job that you're working. It could be anything. It's interesting the way they frame it too, because like the, the, from the sounds of it, the way they pose the question is always like, these people who disagree with them, what do you think of them? And then they would say, ah, yes, this person is an idiot. Therefore, I am right. And not framed in such a way where it's like, these people disagreed with you. You are the smart one. Therefore, they are idiots. Like, it's it's a distinction that's... I think it should be less focused on what status do you have above other people versus how well-informed are you? Like, are you... are Do you have the opinions that you hold because you have read up on different viewpoints and you are informed and so you've come to your conclusion that way? Or do you think that you have uh, more political clout because because you are of a higher socioeconomic socioeconomic status. So I think it's recognizing where your viewpoints come from. Our third article this episode comes from the Medical Journal of Australia. Cannabis use in pregnancy. Researchers discovered that continued use of cannabis at 15 weeks of pregnancy was associated with significantly lower birth weight, head circumference, birth length, and gestational age at birth, as well as with more frequent severe neonatal morbidity or death. So we, we've talked about cannabis more than a little on this podcast. <laughs> more than a little, less than a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's shown up a decent amount. And I would, I think, I think that every time it has showed up on this podcast, it has been in a positive light. It's been finding some new way of either using it to be like a painkiller or the economic benefits of legalizing it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's because cannabis has been a, this big thing of like, look at all, now that it's becoming a bit less taboo and a bit more legal, at least in the cool countries, now that we have this material to play with, what can we do? Yeah. But with this big surge of enthusiasm, which is warranted, now we get to the, okay, but slow your horses a bit. <laughs> because this is yeah. still a worn object you're inhaling and putting into your lungs. And there's sometimes, and that's not a good idea, especially when there is a human being growing inside of you. With much smaller lungs. I would say that since cannabis is now becoming this more widely, you know, widely recognized substance, um, you know, we need to know the positives and the negatives. So we need to know, will this be helpful for pain management? But also, will this make your baby's head small? <laughs> will this make your baby small size? Will you have a micro baby? <laughs> designer micro baby <laughs> so as in the 70s and 80s we went too deep into the fear of cannabis now we run the risk of being too deep into the success of cannabis and so yeah it's it's, it's very important to, <laughs> that was supposed to be a serious thought but okay well no i i definitely no you're right it's as something becomes more accepted we need to know what its limits are we yeah. need to know is this safe to consume mm -hmm. during pregnancy is you know all these different <laughs> and the answer is no <laughs> no it's not even like kind of no it's like no <laughs> let's talk about what they did there was a study that was done called the scope study which essentially i believe just took 5600 pregnant women and just collected all sorts of data on them like everything you could do this was not specifically just looking at cannabis i believe this was looking at like everything and and then it's it's fueled a bunch of different studies around pregnancies including this one now this was done 2004 to 2011 so this is sort of 
pre-cannabis hype or the very start of it maybe and a lot of this stuff is in like australia new zealand bit like uk and ireland so let's take a look at box one because this study lovely has uh, several boxes of data and box one is is the money box if you ask me (laughs) view box so there's 5600 people in the study first okay (laughs) <laughs> show gratitude show gratitude first 5600 people in the study 5200 of them essentially 5300 of them never used cannabis during the pregnancy they're boring they're not important bah. they live boring lives <laughs> squares yeah <laughs> squares this, within the box this shows some good like secondary data like so for example they they, they divide into three categories either they smoke cannabis and then quit before they got pregnant or like as I I'm assuming that's also like as soon as they found out they were pregnant. Yeah, assuming it, presumably it's either as soon as they found out or while they were trying yes. to get pregnant. Uh, and then yes. and the second group of who quit early in the pregnancy, which I believe is just defined as like pre fifteen weeks before fifteen yeah. weeks, and then people who used it after sixteen weeks, which is only sixty people. If you look at the data, the people who continue to use cannabis post fifteen weeks of pregnancy are younger people who had. A lower socioeconomic index. So these are like poorer people who are getting pregnant young, are continuing to use cannabis, and then the the less cannabis you use, the more the older you tended to get, and the richer you tended to get. Which is a whole mm-hmm. nother study and a whole nother thing we can dive into. Which yeah. We're probably not going to right now, but that yeah. speaks volumes to me. I was gonna say we are we are mostly a uh, kind of blasé humor podcast. Uh, probably not something we need to jump into in this moment. Oh, I like I I would love to see a study on that, but that's not what the study is. So let's not oh, get yeah. off track with the demographics of cannabis use. That being said, there's yes. not a lot like there's not a lot necessarily to dive into because it's pretty straightforward. Like if you take if you continue to use cannabis post 15 weeks, your babies weighed less, they had smaller heads, and they were shorter, and they were born earlier. All those yeah. are bad things. Born <laughs> earlier, which and I did they actually did they show increased morbidity? They they. They mentioned it, but I, uh, with a sample size that small, it's tough. You only have sixty people out yeah. of like fifty six hundred. So to to also to clarify, um, morbidity is uh, occurrences of disease. Yes, morbidity doesn't just mean death, as even no, though it's that's got, mortality. Even though it's got morbid in it, which traditionally is a bad yeah. prefix. <laughs> morbidity morbidity means it is a disease. Mortality means that you date. And everyone in this study was <laughs> was a low risk pregnancy. So they were deliberately selecting yes. people that had no other sort of like historical mm-hmm. genealogy towards bad pregnancies. Um, yes. So you traditionally you want fat, long, round babies. You want your healthy, healthy, not micro babies. Yes, the ideal shape for a baby, thick. <laughs> you want your babies round. Yeah, you want like a, a big, stocky, like a rugby player type baby. You don't want like a little twig baby. <laughs> A little, a little, <laughs> you want it to look like the rugby player not the rugby ball ideally is the alan's guide to babies rugby balls are still they still have a wide part true but compared to the people holding them what would you rather your baby this look is like? true <laughs> um it depends am i adopting or having this baby naturally oh you're no you're I think having i prefer it to be the son no you're I... having it it just crawls out <laughs> oh god do you know what birth is, Alan? Do you know where babies come from? Do we need to give you the talk? Yeah, storks. Duh. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, when a man and a woman are very grateful to each other. 
<laughs> they bring the mashed potatoes to the orgy. Yes. And... Why mashed potatoes? Carbs. Of all the th- of all the things you have at a, at a Thanksgiving dinner, mashed potatoes is like the least innuendo-y. No, but because it's full of carbs, and you need carbs in order to fuel the orgy. Oh. <laughs> of course. Why didn't I make that connection? Look, mashed potatoes are objectively the sexiest Thanksgiving food. and Not true. All our listeners... Hey, listeners, listeners, on Twitter, tell us, tell us what is the sexiest Thanksgiving Yeah, food. it's, it's the beginning of July, everyone's thinking about Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> let's, let's take a break from this joyful revelry to talk about babies that suck, and have small heads. <laughs> I, I found it interesting too, the, the, part of why they did this is because in the past, cannabis use has often been lumped in with smoking. Yes. And it's it's kind of, and, and they specifically talk about that in this study. Like, a lot of studies talk about, like, oh, you know, don't smoke or do cannabis during pregnancy. And now that, like, smoking marijuana and, like, legalized use of cannabis is having its kind of day in the sun, and it's not only legalized but popularized, there is a need for this kind of study that said, hey, okay, we know that smoking during pregnancy is bad. There's a whole bunch of public health ads about it. You know, you should not smoke during pregnancy. For years, cannabis use has kind of been lumped in with smoking, so we can assume it's bad, but we don't actually know for sure. We need to isolate for cannabis use specifically. And I think this is like an interesting like first step in what kind of needs to be quite a few different studies in different areas of medicine. Now that it's like, all right, you know, we've legalized uh, using marijuana. That's great. We had to legalize it first. We had to kind of get this going. And now we need to kind of reel it back a little bit not putting like restrictions on whether or not you can or cannot smoke cannabis, but putting guidelines in place for how to do it safely. This is definitely a really good first step. And I'm, I for one am very interested to see what they find uh, if they continue on this research, uh, how using cannabis uh, in ways other than smoking would affect a baby. Because we already know that inhaling particulate matter into your mm-hmm. lungs is bad for babies. But one thing that they one thing that they mention is that they weren't sure if it was the carbon monoxide from smoking or if it was the actual components within cannabis that was affecting the babies. So we should try like edibles. I'm waiting for the gummy study. Okay. The trick with these <laughs> things is that you cannot you cannot take a hundred pregnant people and then say you fifty are going to eat can- like edibles and let me, let us know if your babies yeah. are fine. <laughs> half of you get prenatal vitamins and the other half <laughs> get gummies get gummies yeah got cannabis gummies let but us know which know. your that's... babies are small and dumb that's <laughs> that's honestly what i was wondering this whole time was just like well what way are these people consuming cannabis does it, it does it say nowhere nope mm-hmm. um they meant they mentioned that one of the things they tested for is after giving birth they tested for postnatal depression um mm-hmm. which I, I find just as a, a very interesting kind of field or, or area. Maybe it went into another study. Nah. And that is all the time we have for this episode. If you'd like to measure the size of our heads, then uh, let us know on Twitter. And you can check us out at OurSciencePod. That's O-U-R SciencePod on Twitter. We will almost certainly be posting a poll on the sexiest Thanksgiving 
food because I'd, what else do I have to do? We are partnered with Science Everywhere. You can check them out at Where is Science on Instagram and Twitter and check out their freestyle social live events on Instagram Live every Tuesday night. You might see me there. You might see some of us there. Uh, you'll always see Anthony Morgan there, who's a great host, and that's, those are great fun events, so check that out. Uh, if you'd like to read these papers that we talked about today, then you can check them out in the description. There will be links to all three articles, so go have fun with that. You can see the incredibly smug man in the second article. With that, for Kyle and Sarah, I was your host, Alan Collier, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye! Bye.